Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series in the gifts of the Holy Spirit with a message titled God's Order in God's Church. So turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 27 and 28, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Years ago, Pastor Jack Hayford told a story that I'm never going to forget. It wasn't a true story. It was uh, much more like a parable. And in his story, he pictured a drunken U.S. serviceman stumbling through the streets of Manila in the Philippines. He's loud and he's unruly. Already, he's tried to proposition a few women. He shouts insults at others. He seems ready for a fight. And shortly, a U.S. military jeep pulls up beside him, and the soldiers in the jeep all have helmets that read, MP, military police. They immediately restrain him and pack him into the Jeep and are ready to haul him away. And they say, soldier, where are you stationed? To that, the soldier exclaims, I'm not stationed anywhere. Haven't you heard? The U.S. Army is all over the world. That's what I do. I I go all over the world. You know, the MPs roll their eyes knowing that this man is in serious trouble. And so they try again. Who's your commanding officer? The soldier is ready for the question. The President of the United States is my commanding officer. I answer only to him. You know, Pastor Hayford went on to explain that no soldier would ever get away with that. Now, while it's true that the President is the commanding officer, it's equally true that there is someone who is given direct authority over him. And using that analogy, Hayford went on to ask why we tolerate people who claim they only answer to Jesus and not to the local church. We've been talking about spiritual gifts and the reality that God has so designed them to function within the context of the local church. But now Paul feels that he needs to add another point. He's been saying that no one can say, I have no need of you. And then he also has been talking about those particular gifts that that require the person who exercises them to be more hidden out of the public eye. He says of that person that God affords them a greater honor. Now, from all of that, we might get the impression that no gift takes priority over another. Uh, But in the text that we're about to read, we're going to see that that's not actually the case. There is a hierarchy that God has placed into the church. So let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27 to 28a. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Now the outpouring of gifts does not mean that there is no leadership structure. You know, just as a human body has a head, so Christ is the head of the church, directing all the affairs of the body. And in his infinite wisdom, God has appointed apostles to be first, prophets to be second, and teachers to be third. And after that, all of the other gifts follow. There is then a hierarchy of leadership in the local church. And only within this divinely ordained structure do the other gifts function as well. Without the structure the Holy Spirit has imposed on the church, the body of Christ becomes dysfunctional and can't do the work of Christ. And so our task is to discover what is meant by this order of apostles, prophets, and then teachers. 
Are these gifts like other gifts? And, and why, after all this talk about interdependence and no gift taking precedence over another, are we suddenly given this hierarchy? So let's follow this one step at a time. So let's start with the apostles. Why are they first? So let's familiarize ourselves with the office of apostle as it's found in the New Testament. You know, the first mention of the word apostle is found in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 and 15. So let me read that. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, from this passage, we should note five things about the apostles. Number one, they were directly appointed by Jesus. Number two, they personally witnessed all that Jesus did. Number three, they were called to be with him, that is, to be trained directly by him. Number four, they were to be given a unique authority both to preach and to drive out demons. And number five, there were only 12 of them. Now, as time goes on, we see the authority that Jesus invests in these 12 apostles. See, even while Jesus spent time with the crowds, his great emphasis was on training the 12. I mean, they learned to cast out demons and to preach. He explained mysteries to them, which he withheld from others. And when he withdrew from the crowds, he called his apostles to join him. It was with them that he met in the upper room before his crucifixion, and it was with them that he revealed the mysteries of the kingdom. And in John 14, verse 26, which is central to this understanding, listen to what Jesus has in mind. He's speaking directly to the twelve, and here's what he says. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So please notice that this promise is uniquely given to the twelve. Jesus is promising that the apostles would become authoritative witnesses, not just of his life and his teachings and his miracles and his death and resurrection. Yet they would witness that, but they would witness more. The Holy Spirit would ensure that when they talked about Jesus in the future, they would have 100% accuracy in recounting his ministry. But there's still more to it than that. They would be able to teach others the implications of the ministry of Jesus. And so when we read through the epistles or the letters in the New Testament, the letters apply the teachings of the death and resurrection of Jesus to the church in a way that is exactly 100% in line with what Jesus would have said to the churches. So that means that what the apostles are to the church is something that's unique to the apostles. They have a leadership role in establishing the church that was entrusted to no one else. So by the time we come to the book of Acts, the apostles are clearly taking a leadership role. You know, as the book of Acts opens, Luke sets the stage for what is to follow. So I'm reading Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Luke writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit, now listen to this, to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
In other words, the direction for the church, including the commands to remain in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit was given, that was entrusted to the apostles. They're the primary leaders. Their authority is delegated to them directly by Jesus. Now, there's so much more to say. You know, someone might ask, well, what about Judas being excluded and Matthias being included to take his place? And I don't actually have time to go over that in detail, but, but would you notice that everyone seems to understand that they are just 12 apostles, just like a modern-day jury. They are witnesses of the Jesus event. But what about the apostle Paul? Isn't he an apostle? Well, yeah, he is. So does that mean that we can still add apostles today? No, we can't. Listen to what the Bible says. According to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, Paul calls himself one untimely born or one abnormally born. Now, clearly, there's something unique about the call of Paul which makes his calling different. But is he an apostle? So we begin with Paul's own testimony in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1. Here he writes, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Now, look, we, we have no knowledge if Paul actually physically saw Jesus during his earthly ministry. But Paul did see him on the road to Damascus. And does seeing a vision of Jesus make someone into an apostle? Well, no, it doesn't. An apostle was chosen by Jesus and personally trained and mentored by Jesus. Now, Paul's defense of his apostolic ministry in the book of Galatians is really important to this argument. Paul claims that he was directly instructed by Jesus. Listen to what he says in Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, I wish I had time to carefully work through the first two chapters of Galatians, and if we did, we would see that while Paul was in Arabia, the risen Christ appeared to him, and over three years, as long as the others had, Christ himself instructed Paul and mentored him in the gospel. We have to imagine Jesus meeting constantly with Paul in his glorified form, teaching, instructing, mentoring, and preparing him for ministry. No human being trained Paul. Jesus did it personally. Indeed, the other apostles seem to have recognized that Peter calls Paul's writings in 2 Peter 3, 14 to 16, Scripture. So the other apostles recognized the apostolic authority of Paul. Recently, Joy, who found us online, wrote to say, I came across Back to the Bible Canada by accident, as it was one of the first sites that flashed up in my desperation to find food for my spirit. Since then, my spiritual walk has never been the same. The teaching of Dr. Neufeld has opened up scripture for me in a way that I've longed for for years, but until now, never experienced. Our goal at Back to the Bible Canada is to ensure that people across Canada are provided the same opportunity as joy. Will you help us provide trustworthy Bible teaching to people who are desperate for spiritual food? If you'd like to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. 
Now, time forbids me from proving from Scripture that there were only ever 12 apostles plus one, that's Paul. That number actually never grew. Do you know what is fascinating about that? As the apostles became older, they never replaced themselves. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, in his last letter before his death, Paul tells Timothy, a church leader, to teach others what Paul had taught Timothy so that others will be able to teach others. And so there are teachers and leaders constantly being called into existence, but never new apostles. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, without dealing with the identity of the prophets for now, please notice that the apostles form the foundation of the house of God. See, the imagery is simple. The church is being compared to a great structure. The foundation on which that structure stands is the apostolic testimony of Jesus, who is the cornerstone. And just as one does not repeat a foundation for a building, so the foundation of this structure is laid down once and for all. What the apostles gave us is the enduring foundation of the church. All that successive generations can do is build upon the one foundation that has forever been laid. And from that, we get a doctrine of the New Testament built on the foundation that the apostles have laid with nothing ever added to the New Testament. You know, it's complete. It's final. And that's why we don't have living apostles today. If we did, well, then we'd have to argue that we have an incomplete Bible. An apostle is a one-time ministry never to be repeated. It's foundational. That's why the apostles come first. They gave us the scripture. They gave us the foundational teaching of Jesus. Now then, 1 Corinthians tells us that the prophets come second. So who are they? So in order to answer that, listen to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 to 5. Here Paul speaks of his own writings that make up a part of the New Testament. Here's what he says. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, the prophets that Paul is speaking about in this passage are not the Old Testament prophets. How do I know that? Because these prophets, along with the apostles, have received insight into Christ that previous generations did not know. So clearly, they function in the New Testament era. And since, like the apostles, their work forms the foundation of the church, and therefore, it can never be repeated, it also is a once-for-all work. So who are these people then? Well, we begin by noticing that there are people in the New Testament who have been given the gift of prophecy. Well, they include men like Agabus. We find him in Acts eleven twenty eight, 28. And he's foretelling a great famine that would come over the world and would especially affect the believers in Jerusalem. And then in Acts 21, this same Agabus prophesies that Paul is going to be bound hand and foot when he enters into Jerusalem. So is the church built on the foundation of people like Agabus? And the answer is absolutely not. See, a careful analysis of the nature of Agabus' prophecy is going to reveal that the kind of prophecy that is carried out by men like Agabus, well, it's qualitatively different than such prophecies, for instance, Jeremiah and Isaiah in the Old Testament, 
or Paul and Peter in the New Testament. See, when Agabus prophesies, he speaks to something which is time-specific. What do I mean? Well, when biblical writers prophesy, they are speaking what I call supra-cultural truths. So these are things that are true for all people at all points in history. So we come to the conclusion that there's a difference between the gift of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 12.10 and the kind of prophet that Paul speaks about who serves as a foundational gift to the church, which gives insight into the mysteries of Christ. So who then are the prophets that are second in importance coming after the apostles? Well, I'm convinced that they must refer to men like John Mark, who writes the book of Mark, under the leadership of and the watchful eye of Peter. They've got to refer to people like Luke, who authored both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. We know that Luke was a close associate of the Apostle Paul and was under his leadership. They also include men like James and Jude, and depending on your view of the authorship of Hebrews, they might also include Barnabas. They are those New Testament writers who are not apostles, but who also write New Testament books. So while they write authoritatively, their leadership in the church is placed under the leadership of the apostles who watch their work and safeguard its accuracy. See, because the New Testament is written by apostles and prophets, which form the foundation of the church, and because the apostles take the leadership and the prophets write under the leadership of the apostles, we can see why it is the apostles come first and the prophets come second. And then Paul adds, the teachers come third. See, in 1 Corinthians, Paul simply refers to the gift of teaching. And then in Ephesians 2, he refers to that same gift as the gift of pastor slash teacher. So it's clear to Paul that this gift comes third in God's ordering of church leadership. In other words, as the Holy Spirit gives gifts to the church, the exercise of those gifts are to be subservient under those who have been called to preach and teach the word of God. So now notice that Paul never says that pastors and teachers form the foundation of the church. They don't. Only the apostles and prophets can play that role, but the teachers and preachers build on the foundation that has once for all been laid. See, that means that the preaching and teaching office is repeatable. Every generation requires more men called to this office whose central task it is to carefully study the writings of the apostles and prophets who, who become experts in what they have once for all been given and then are able to teach the rest of the church what the apostles and prophets have said. See, that's why every preacher and pastor is forbidden from teaching his own material or establishing his own doctrine. The only way to know if a pastor or teacher is faithful is to watch and see if first he has established that he is a master in understanding the writings of the apostles and prophets. That is, he has put in the time to become an expert in the New Testament. And second, the pastor and teacher shows God's people how to apply the New Testament to their lives. So in essence, the work of pastors and teachers assures that the leadership of the apostles and prophets is felt in the church today. See, pastors and teachers, yeah, they're called upon to be accountable to the church, but please understand, they are accountable to the apostles and prophets and are directly under their leadership. None of them has the right to say anything that's not directly taught by the apostles and prophets. Now, by the way, that's why I can never be a Roman Catholic. 
See, Roman Catholics teach that the Pope is an apostle. And to that, we must answer, he was not directly mentored by Jesus. Instead, he went to seminary like everyone else, and he was chosen by the College of Cardinals. That's not an apostle. He has no right to add any doctrine that the apostles did not teach. Now, in 1 Corinthians 12, 27 and following, we don't get a fourth position. You know what I mean? We don't get apostles first, then prophets second, then teachers third, and then someone else like, you know, a, a, a tongue speaker or an administrator or anything else fourth. You know, after one, two, and three, there is no fourth. Everybody expresses their gifts after that. After number three, there's no hierarchy. And that's the key to the healthy use of spiritual gifts. If we are carefully being taught the Word of God and are called to be answerable to it, then the gifts will be exercised in an orderly fashion. But if the church does not carefully, verse by verse, teach the Scripture, so you can then rest assured that the exercise of the gifts are going to be chaos, they're going to be a mess. See, that's why I'm comfortable to allow tongues and prophecy to be included among the gifts that are exercised today. You see, when these gifts are practiced where the Bible is not carefully and faithfully taught, where there is no attention given to verse-by-verse -verse analysis of the Scripture, paying attention to, you know, grammar, the original intent of the writing, when that's not done, you can expect chaos. When we allow administrators or prophecies or tongues or even leadership gifts to take precedence over the teaching of Scripture, at that point in time, the church descends into anarchy where everyone's opinion rules. The church is called upon to be directly obedient to Jesus under the leadership of first apostles, second prophets, and then third pastors and teachers. And when this is in place, enjoy your spiritual gifts. Use them to glorify God and watch the church grow. John, thanks for your message today. Just, just to make it really clear, when we come to know Jesus, we're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. That's what this text teaches. Ben, I didn't mention in my message that, you know, there are all manner of experiences that we have with the Holy Spirit after our initial baptism with the Holy Spirit. We have additional fillings. I mean, the, you know, the book of Acts speaks about the Holy Spirit falling upon individuals, and we can have new experiences with the gifts, and, and all manner of things happen. So I am completely open to people having new experiences with the Spirit, but we ought not to deny that fundamental reality which is necessary for us to see that which binds us all together. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. I'm grateful to express our gratitude for those who supported the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada with a financial gift during our fiscal year-end match campaign. Last month, we reached out across the country to ask for your help to sustain the Bible teaching and engagement ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. We're excited to share that we reached our match campaign goal of $75,000 in June, resulting in $150,000 being contributed to our fiscal year-end. The campaign was such a success that now an additional $50,000 has been pledged to continue our match campaign through July. 
So for the month of July, we share with you the opportunity to participate in an additional $50,000 for dollar match campaign. Every dollar you give will be doubled. Thank you for your generosity and commitment. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.